How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, it's my great, great, great delight to have my friend and brother and comrade in arms, Dr. Ron Rhodes, back on the podcast. For those of you who do not yet know Dr. Rhodes, he received both his THM and his THD from the Dallas Theological Seminary. We lived on the same street. He was four doors down, a couple of years ahead of me, a lot smarter than me. He is the president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministry, an apologetics organization. He's authored north of 60 books, millions in print. He is a keynote speaker across the U.S. and Canada, as time permits. He teaches at Dallas Seminary, Veritas Seminary. He has been a regular guest on both national and regional television and radio broadcasts, including CBN, Trinity Television, The Family, Net Television, Cornerstone Television, Worship Television, Crossroads Christian Communication, etc., etc., Salem Communications, USA, Radio, Moody Radio, of which he is often a guest of my dear friend Janet Parshall. And he and his wife Carrie live outside the Dallas-Fort Worth area. With that, and no further ado, Ron, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it is my pleasure. Uh, you're doing such a great job, and I heard you talking about me, but, you know, you've done such a tremendous work in the body of Christ. And, you know, our prayers are with you as you continue this important work. And and may those who listen to this increase greatly. Amen. Amen. I was just talking to one of my closest friends on the way in to the studio this morning. And I'm 63 now, Ron. And I said, when do I get to stop? And he said, you don't. (laughs) Uh uh... Same for you, right? My retirement plan is the rapture. <laughs> Ouch. Don't we get to like binge on Netflix and, you know, surf on the computer and, you know, whatever else? Why do we have to keep? <laughs> you know, I, I think that Christians can have fun and, you know, we do all slow down. I, I know that I slow down a little bit, but, you know, I don't know about you, Michael, but I just love what I'm doing. And even if I had the opportunity just to stop doing everything and just relax and do nothing, I mean, I would much rather continued writing and, you know, doing the radio and TV shows and when there's opportunity to speak. And, you know, it's just a part of my fabric these days. And I don't know what I would do with myself if I couldn't do that anymore. Well, there is that. And on a good day, I'm with you. But sometimes I just feel a little bit lazy. You know, I'd like to just do nothing. Yeah, that's natural. (laughs) Especially for us old fogies, you know. That's right. I was talking to Roger Pryor. I don't know if you knew him. Yes. At the Dallas Seminary, too. And we were thinking of forming an old buzzards club. <laughs> you know, just old buzzards for Christ. OBC. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it, man. <laughs> I can see a logo. I can see a website. Yeah. 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 Probably yeah. probably has it, golf carts and pot-bellied men on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And a few hairs popping up out of the skull. There you go. There you go. Well, we've come up with these 10 questions and had a lot of fun with them. And for those who might be just joining this interview, 
what we have done. Hannah Seymour, my executive producer and firstborn daughter, and I came up with this idea about, you know, let's talk to some of your friends, Michael, about these questions and how, you know, they've been influenced and encouraged. So that's our 10 questions format, and we kind of go here, there, and yonder. But the first one is a little bit self-evident in my conversation with Dr. Rhodes because it is the concept of in context was a double entendre. It was, we must look at the Bible in the context in which it's written before we jump to application. And so then the other aspect was, how do you live as a Christian in your context? And of course, Ron, you're in what we would call vocational or full-time Christian ministry, but it would be helpful for folks to hear how you ended up as sort of this Bible teacher slash apologetic go-to guy. Well, you know, a lot of people look at people who are in full-time ministry like us, and they may not know what goes on behind the scenes. And so part of my context involves what goes on behind the scenes. And I would say to begin with, I'd really say there's four contexts. The first one is my awesome marriage relationship. Now, you've known my wife, Carrie, for many years. Yes. Right? I mean, like you said, we went to seminary and lived on the same street. And a big part of what I do is an outgrowth of my family relationship, not just with my wife, but we have two grown children, both incredible children and godly children, and they're God's greatest gift to me. They all pray for me and encourage me and take care of me when I'm sick. And, you know, they keep me grounded with both feet on the ground. We have lots of fun together. They keep me sane. And I really don't think I could do my work without that beginning point. So, you know, when people look at you and see you on TV or radio or read a book or something, they may not think about that aspect. But for me, it's been a primary beginning point. You know, just that strong family foundation that I have. But another one, another context. And if I might interrupt, what you just said has become more and more rare. You know, for long-term marriages that love the Lord, for kids, I mean, we are so blessed with our two older daughters in particular, and Cindy often says, we won the sons-in-law lottery. We've got the most <laughs> incredible sons-in-law. We would have never picked them out of a lineup. Yeah, and grandchildren? We have three grandkids, and they're the best people on the planet, of course. You know, you know the bumper sticker that says, have grandchildren first, right? <laughs> 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 but all that to say, just circle back. What you said is so important because the Christian home, a good husband, wife, you know, you and Carrie are like Cindy and me. We just enjoy each other. Yeah. You know, just hanging out together, being in the same home. We both office at home. We have a great relationship, friendship, and that is an underpinning the next generation hears and gets. Well, you know what? One of my favorite things to do every day is that Carrie and I get in the golf cart here where I live. I won't say where I live, but we get in a golf cart and we live on a lake and we like to just kind of get in the golf cart and just kind of go over to the lake area and just sit there and watch God's beauty and just talk about stuff. We just sit there and talk about stuff. And that's really the high point of my day, really. I mean, it's just nothing better than that. You know, that's after I've done all my work for the day, I might be writing a book or I might be doing some radio shows or whatever. It is a great way just to spend some time toward the end of the day, just to go out and be alone and be with, you know, with your loved one, be with Carrie and do that. 
And I can't tell you what that does to your marriage, just doing that every single day. And I can't imagine what my life would be without mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Amen. So that was your first context. The second? Well, I don't think this one will surprise you. But my second context is the educational process has continued for me. You know, I graduated from Dallas Seminary, like you said, and got my master's and doctoral degrees there. But I have to confess something to you. I am a relentless bookworm. I love to read books. I am constantly learning, and I find it immensely fulfilling. And so, you know, I'm not just one of those guys that is working all the time in ministry. A lot of time I might be sitting in a chair somewhere reading a good book Mm -hmm. on something. And that affects everything that I do. You know, whether I'm writing books or doing radio or TV or speaking at conferences, all of that points back to this ongoing educational process. And I hope that's an encouragement to people because even when you go to school and learn something, don't let the process end there. Your life can be immeasurably enriched, especially with some of the incredibly great Christian books that are out there. So that's one of my favorite things. But now we get to the real meat of it, Michael, because it's something you've already alluded to, and that's the Lord's kingdom assignment for me. And that has to do with Christian apologetics. And that involves the defense of the Christian faith, Even back in seminary, when I was studying under guys like John F. Wolbert and Charles Ryrie and Dwight Pentecost and others, a guy came along that I hadn't actually heard of yet, but turned out to be a major influence on me. And that was Dr. Norman Geisler, Mm. whom I bet you know. Storm and Norman, miss him. Storm and Norman, that's right. And he not only taught me apologetics, but, you know, little did I know what a powerful impact he would have throughout the rest of my life. In fact, I had no idea that one day I would actually be authoring books with Norm and doing conferences with Norm and working together at seminaries. I remember when my doctoral dissertation was written, it was on an apologetics issue, the New Age Movement. And through Norm's help, a popularized version of that dissertation was published by Baker Bookhouse. And then after I became co-host of the uh, Bible Answer Man broadcast, We daily ran a one-minute advertisement for the book that Norm himself recorded, and he had actually done it on a little cassette player. Remember those cassette players? Yes, of course. Those came out right after the time of Moses. (laughs) No, no, there was an eight-track first. (laughs) Oh, maybe I'm thinking of it. It must have been right after the flood. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So anyway, Norm was instrumental in launching the publishing side of my apologetics word. And the reason I'm mentioning this, Michael, is is something real important for those who work at seminaries or who are professors or who disciple others. Norm is not one of those guys who just taught students in a classroom. Even after I graduated, he basically took me by the hand and showed me, this is how you do it. Watch me and learn. We're going to do this together. I'm going to you know, help you get into publication, and we're going to get you situated to defend the faith. So strap on your seatbelt and let's go. And that was years. You know, that took place over years. And so I have to you know, point back to the influence of a what can only be considered a major Christian influence in the world, Norman Geisler. So let me inject here. We recorded John Ankerberg's answers to the questions, and he talked about Geisler in the same fashion. Oh, and, awesome. And how you know that was what spurred him on with what he was doing when it came to apologetics, of course, he was very close to Walter Martin as well. They were dear friends. Oh. Oh, but yeah. you what? think about Geisler's footprint, you know, a funny side, side story. I lead groups to Israel most years, sometimes twice a year. And I bet 
let's say the last five times I went, I ran into Norm three times at Tell Dan <laughs> on the trail. And, you know, you always feel great when a mentor hero remembers you, goes, hey, Michael. <laughs> oh, great. And we would stand there by the waterfalls while the other, you know, tour leaders were teaching and catch up. And he, I'd say he was, he is with the Lord. He is a prince of a man and to take guys like you and me under his wing. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing about Norm is, is that no matter where he was, you know, like if he was you know, to the Holy land or at a conference or wherever, he's an older man, you know, in recent yes. years. And the funny thing is, is that all the younger guys had to work really hard just to keep up with him. Even when Norm was just walking, hmm. Norm had this kind of a little, a shuffle that he walked along with. But he was really fast, <laughs> and you, you see these people like chasing after him, trying to you know keep step with him. So I mean, he was going strong up until the end. In seminary, we called them the Geislerites. <laughs> <laughs> they were like a little group of pig pen people that followed him around campus and could barely keep up with him. <laughs> That's me. And I'm glad that he did. I mean, I just learned so much from him and. You know, I remember the first couple of books that I wrote, he graciously agreed to go through them and, you know, make sure that they were on target. I remember one paragraph, Michael, this is so funny. There was one particular paragraph in my book, Christ Before the Major, which deals with the pre-incarnate Christ. And he circled the paragraph and in giant letters, he said, no, with a big exclamation point. <laughs> and, and then he put, his, he put his explanation under that. But I mean, he's the kind of guy who would tell you the truth. There's some people who will tell you what you want to hear, but Norman Geisler was the kind of guy who would tell you what you need to hear. Yes. And so, I mean, I always appreciated that about him. Not only that, but I often edited his work before it went into publication, even when I was in seminary. Nice. And he would invite me over to his house in payment for my editing work. He would invite me over to his house and take me over to one part of his library. And he pointed to like thousands of books and he said, okay, now I'm giving all these books away. So you're free to take whatever you want Wow, as payment for what you've just done. Wow. And it, it, that's a seminarian's dream. Yep. You know, for those of us who study and love books. So anyway, just lots of good times there. So there was a fourth one? There was a fourth one, and that has to do with my personal and ongoing recognition that ultimately I am a simple Christian who is dependent. I am dependent on the Lord. And I say that, Michael, purposefully, because when I try to do things in my own strength, I screw it up. And when I try to do things in my own strength, my efforts often fail. And the truth of it is, like Paul said, the Lord's strength is made powerful in human weakness. Mm -hmm. And this is confession time for me. The Lord has regularly had to train me regarding this lesson because I sometimes slip back into self-dependence mode. I think we all do. Yeah. That temptation is always there. It can sneak up on you without you even realizing it. And so the Lord is a master at sovereignly bringing about just the right circumstances to bring me back to that place of dependence. Mm. And so without that, I'm confident that the Lord would not have used me in the work of apologetics. You try to do things in your own strength and you're going to become a victim of the world. You're going to become a victim of the devil. I mean, you've got to be in a position of dependence on the Lord or as far as I'm concerned, it's going to go down. And so those are the four contexts, a wonderful marriage, a commitment to perpetually learn, my life calling in apologetics, and the Lord's working in my life to keep me dependent. 
Let's move on. The greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey. Well, I think that my answer to that, in all honesty, again, it's kind of confession time, but it's the need to keep personal devotions and quiet times at the heart and center of all that I do. I don't know if you've ever had that problem, Michael. Oh, never. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those go-getter kind of guys, okay? I'm one of those people who, by nature, grabs the football and runs with it. And my tendency, especially in my early years, is just to get out there and get busy for the Lord. And I can think back on a number of occasions in my life in ministry and recall a number of times where I was involved in some major project for the Lord. And then suddenly I realized, hey, wait a minute. I've gotten so busy here that I haven't had any devotions. Mm -hmm. I haven't had any worship time with the Lord. And you know what always happens? Invariably, you end up in some kind of a burnout or a crash and burn or something. And so I have learned now as an older man that no matter how busy I am and no matter how many doors of opportunity are there, I must never allow private time with God to get crowded out. You know, you've done some reading with Martin Luther, right? Of course. Four hours a day was at the... I thought it was three. Three in the morning. First thing he did, yeah. And some student asked him how he made time for that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but his answer was, I could not do the rest of my day apart from that. Well, that's right. He said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But Well, it's kind of like money, I think. You know, I think stewardship, we live better on 80 or 90% of our income than we do on 100. You know, if we're giving first to the Lord of our time, our talent, our treasure, to be cliche, that makes a difference. Well, I remember, you know, with this crisis that's facing the country with people staying home a lot, I've been flipping the channel, looking at a lot of preachers on the television, and I heard Charles Stanley preaching, and he was talking about how prayer is the greatest time saver out there. Huh. I like it. It's the greatest time saver out there. So I think that fits in with what we're talking That's about. That's a good, yeah. Okay. Again, a little bit of a cliche question, but do you have a favorite verse or book of the scripture? Oh, I do. In fact, there's two verses I often tie together in my work of ministry. And I may have told you them before. I don't remember the last time we talked, what we said to each other. But in John 15, verse 5, Jesus affirmed, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I always tie that over to Philippians 4.12, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So my entire modus operandi is based on those two verses. I can't do anything in my own strength, but I can do all things through Christ and his strength. And the reason that's important, Michael, is that after graduating from seminary, I got involved in an awful lot of stuff that from my perspective as a student seemed scary, okay? I mean, the prospect of, you know, doing a radio show, for example, when I started doing that, it seemed kind of scary. It's like stepping out on thin ice or doing TV shows or writing a book and hoping the publisher doesn't go bankrupt from publishing your book. You know, those are kind of scary things from the perspective of a student just starting out. And so I remember zeroing in on these verses, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing, but in Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That sort of put a foundation under my legs, under my feet that I stood on and affected everything else that I did. And those verses enabled me to dare to do things that scare away a lot of people. You know, that it just motivated me to try, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Right. I can fail. 
right? The worst that can happen. But why not dare to see if God will open the door and make it happen and trust Christ through the entire process? You know, I think so many of us are insecure, and really that's a, a lot about ego. And we are going to say foolish things. We are going to make mistakes. We are going uh, to come up against people smarter or yeah. better versed. But if that keeps us on the sideline, which goes back to my first, you know, kind of cajoling about when do we get to retire? You know, as long as you can fight and fog a mirror, you, you know, may need to persevere in that. Let's move on. After the Bible, two, three books that have been particularly impactful. And I know it's hard to say, but give me a shot. Well, you know, as a doctor of theology, I think I'm supposed to say something about a high and lofty theological book written by some great luminary of church history. But the truth is, the first book that made a huge impact on me was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Yeah. I mean, I love that book. After I became a Christian back in the 70s, I remember coming across a Christian magazine where about 30 Christian leaders were interviewed about the most important Christian book they'd read that year. And about a third of them said Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That time, I had not heard of him. I didn't know who he was. But I decided it was so many positive comments, I just had to read the book. Well, when I did read the book, it had a powerful effect on my spiritual life because God became so magnified in my heart. The concept of God that Packer instilled in me set the ball in motion for my future work in Christian ministry. So it was a game changer kind of a book. Little did I know, Michael, that I would later spend some time with J.I. Packer. In fact, I spent an entire afternoon with him. And I remember walking away from that time thinking, man, that guy really does know God. This is a guy worth emulating. And then years later, after I had been in publication for a while, I remember receiving a letter from him, as well as from Wayne Grudem. It was a joint letter asking me to participate in the ESV study Bible, which I was so blessed beyond measure to do. Now, you know that J.I. Packer is now with the Lord. Yes. And so the idea of knowing God has now taken on a whole new dimension for him. <laughs> and in that sense, I kind of envy him, you know. Mm -hmm. But the other book, Michael, was very similar. It was after I read Packer's book that I read A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge oh, so of the, the Holy. Holy. Interesting. Yeah. And here's why all of this is important, knowing God. Knowing God increased my faith. Knowing God increases boldness. Knowing God calms the spirit in the face of adversity. Knowing God motivates Bible study. Knowing God makes you look forward to heaven. And best of all, Michael, knowing God is a lifelong pursuit. Mm -hmm. I didn't just know God all of a sudden from reading those books. Those books got me started. But throughout the entire rest of my time here on this earth, I've been learning all new stuff about God from the pages of Scripture. Yes. And even when we get to heaven, I think we're going to continue to learn awesome things about God. So, you know, that has been a real foundation for me in my work. You know, part of the reason behind these 10 questions, you may remember Kent Hughes wrote a book that wasn't a commentary, his only written commentaries, but he wrote one book on men. And at the end of the book, he had compiled guys like Swindoll and MacArthur and, you know, different people like that and asked them these questions. And interestingly, A.B. Bruce's Training of the Twelve showed up again and again and again. And in my asking my friends, it's amazing, Ron, how many have talked about Tozer and Packer. So some of this yeah. may be, you know, generational and what was on the shelf at the time, but I had a maxillofacial surgeon in Nacogdoches, Texas named Dr. Rick Hurst, 
took me under his wing, and we read Knowing God together and met once a week to talk about it, and it was seminal in my thinking. Yeah. Well, to me, Michael, they're the kind of books where you don't just read through like you do a novel. Right. You read a couple of paragraphs. You got to chew it. And you chew it, and you just think about it, and you just go, wow, now that is an amazing insight. Yes. And so it took me a good long time to get through those books just because I was digesting it as I went. But now I can tell you as an older man that through the years, I have gone back to those books over and over again and had a renewed blessing Yeah, yeah. from going through them. And those are individuals that God raised up in a very special way to touch, I think, generation after generation. Agreed. And if there's somebody listening to us today and you haven't read those books. You need to get them, yep. What is the biggest lesson you've learned at this point in your life? Well, as for the biggest lesson, ironically, one of the most important lessons is one that has come later in life. And that lesson is simply this. Life is all too short. Don't waste it. Mm. Don't waste your time. Make every minute count. You know, the psalmist, Michael, I'm sure you preached on this verse. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. An awareness of mortality, I believe, instills in us a desire to make every day count. Now, I speak at a lot of conferences. I'm sure you do, too. I speak at a lot of conferences. I do a lot of Christian TV shows. I do a lot of radio shows. And there's a poem that I have shared hundreds of times with people. It's called Those Wasted Years. It's a poem written by Theodore Brennan. And I know that when I'm speaking to an audience, I try to look out to the first, I don't know, 30 or 40 rows and make as much eye contact with people as possible while I read it. And some people are obviously pondering my words very carefully. I see some people crying tears of joy as I'm reading it. I'm also seeing some people cry tears of remorse. But almost everyone is touched in one way or another. And would you mind if I just read it real quick, Michael? I love it. Listen to these words, and this kind of captures the important lesson that I have been emphasizing to people. I looked upon a farm one day that once I used to own. The barn had fallen to the ground. The fields were overgrown. The house in which my children grew, where we had lived for years, I turned to see it broken down and brushed aside the tears. I looked upon my soul one day to find it too had grown with thorns and nettles everywhere the seeds neglect had shown. The years had passed while I had cared for things of lesser worth, the things of heaven I let go when minding things of earth. To Christ I turned with bitter tears and cried, O Lord, forgive. I haven't much time left for thee, not many years to live. The wasted years forever gone, the days I can't recall, if I could live those days again, I'd make him Lord of all. Mm. It's a short poem, but it is one of the best illustrations I know of Ephesians 5.16, where we are exhorted to redeem the time. Redeem the time while there is yet time to redeem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as an older person, I take those words especially seriously. If you're a younger person who's listening in, listen, get serious with this. Don't waste your life. Make every minute count for the Lord. Amen. I just preached Psalm 90, which is one I have gone back to again and again at a conference. Cindy and I were speaking at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. And at the end of that, the oldest psalm in the Psalter 
where Moses twice says, you know, show us the work of our hands. Yes, show me the work of my hands. And you think about the most revered human the Jew knew who talked to God like a man who was given the law, who precedes all the prophets in some respects, who, you know, for 120 years of his life was used by God in extraordinary ways, who does not get to go into the promised land because he struck the rock versus speaking to the rock. And in my sanctified imagination, and I think fairly good hermeneutics, I think he's taken them up somewhere in the range of Nebo on the eastern side of the Jordan. They're looking over into the land that he would not be able to inhabit. And it's a lovely passage in Deuteronomy 34 where the Lord himself buried his servant Moses. And we think about the Christophany of Jesus coming down and piling the rocks on his dead friend's body Yeah, about the dignity of burial. Wow. But I always think about that. You know, here's a guy that unparalleled in his walk with God, and yet he has the same question. Did my life count? Did my life have meaning? Yeah. And I know today that's an especially important question, Michael, because we're living in confusing times. Yes. We're living in times where even many Christians are not grounded. And if you're not grounded in God's truth, then you're easy prey to become very confused, especially about world circumstances. You know, how do we interpret reality today? We've witnessed also a rejection of the Bible in place of personal experience. And because of that, we've got a lot of groundless Christians, if I might put it that way. And that's a ripe breeding ground of confusion and disillusionment. And for me, it's the scriptures that have provided that grounding to live upon. And I'll probably talk about that before we finish here. But Great stuff. Yeah. If you're a young person, man, just take this seriously now. Let's move on here. What's one thing, and, you know, boy, I want to hear this answer because the way you traffic in so many conferences and media, what's one thing that you would long for every believer to know, to do, to believe? Well, you're right about, you know, being trafficking in and out of conferences and being out there with the people. And that's led me to see something that's very, very clear and that there's an awful lot of Christians out there who are earth focused. They're world focused. I'm not saying they're necessarily worldly, but everything is about in the now. And one of the things that I have said virtually hundreds of times, and I will continue to say this at conferences and radio shows and TV shows and so forth, is that I like to remind people of the grand reversal that is coming. And you may not know what I mean by that, but I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Because recognition of the coming grand reversal changes the way that you live in the now. So can I take a minute and explain what I mean, Michael? Of course. I'll take a few minutes, actually. You know, in Genesis, we witness God creating the heavens and the earth. But in Revelation, God creates the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, the sun and the moon were created as two great lights. But in Revelation, the eternal heavenly city where we'll live, there is no longer any need for such light, for the glory of God lights up the eternal city. In Genesis, God created the night. But in the book of Revelation, in the eternal state, there is no longer any night. In Genesis, human beings succumb to the temptations of Satan through the serpent, But in Revelation, in the eternal state, Satan is eternally quarantined away from the people of God 
and he's no longer around to harass us. In Genesis, Adam and Eve succumbed to sin, but in Revelation, redeemed humans are free from sin forever and live in a perfectly holy environment. In Genesis, as a result of sin, we witness a curse pronounced by God. But in Revelation, in the eternal state, there is no more curse. Mm. In Genesis, paradise was lost. The first man and woman were ousted from the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, paradise is gloriously restored for believers in the eternal state. And never again will they be ousted from paradise. In Genesis, the first man and woman were barred from the tree of life. In Revelation, in the eternal city, redeemed humans are restored to the tree of life. In Genesis, tears, death, and mourning enter human existence. In Revelation, in the eternal state, tears, death, and mourning are forever absent. And then finally, Michael, in Genesis, a Redeemer is promised, but in Revelation, the victorious Redeemer reigns mm -hmm. face to face with his children, with his believers, and they will be with him face to face forever. Now, why is it that I like to remind Christians of this? Well, I mentioned to you how many Christians today are earth-centered. They're centered in the now. But the point that I like to make to people is this. We ought to live now in view of then. Let me say it again. We ought to live now in view of then. In other words, we should live our short lives on earth in view of the eternal long lives we'll have in heaven where we will experience this wondrous grand reversal. And people who live with this recognition, Michael, I believe, are most effectively used by God. I bet you you know what C.S. Lewis had to say about heavenly-minded Christians. Does anything come to mind? <laughs> you put me on the spot, Prof. <laughs> he once challenged the claim that some Christians are so heavenly-minded oh, that they are earthly good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he came back and said, it's precisely the opposite. Those Christians who are heavenly-minded do the greatest good mm -hmm. on the earth. And I think that he's right about that. Yeah. But I think the modern church has gotten away from that. We are so oriented towards what's happening today that sometimes we forget about that future grand reversal and the impact that that can make on our lives today. To me, it puts a lot of wind in my sails. I often try to encourage people, that the older I've gotten, I hope I've gotten a little more gentle what was Tozer, a gentle dogmatism that smiles at the future. I've hoped to get that way, but I try to encourage people that when you live the Christian life, we're so I, me, my focused. Yeah. And if you could somehow 10% random innocuous number, think more vertically during the day, Yeah. how that would change not only your perspective and your heart, but what you're about, what you do with your time. And we all have hobbies, we have interests, we have passions, we have things we enjoy, and we are certainly to enjoy the stuff of life. Ecclesiastes doesn't give us permission, but it encourages us to enjoy the stuff of life on earth. But at right. the same time, there must be a, you know, the reformers had that line, they would, you know, we're drinking this, we're eating this meal to the glory of God. And I think even that injection of language and thought would help so many believers who they love Jesus, they know they're sinners, they want to go to heaven, they want to be the right kind of man or woman, but life consumes the day-to-day, -day, the bills, the children, the grandchildren, the health, the mortgage, the weather, COVID, it distracts us, Ron, and somehow to move that 
focus a little bit more vertically. I don't know how to measure it, but when I wake up in the morning and Cindy and I have very similar routines, I literally put my feet on the floor and I say, Lord, either I'm going to serve myself or I'm going to serve you today. Right. It's that simple. I don't know how to serve you well today, but I'm going to take the steps literally from my bed to the shower. And will you help me serve you a little more than just me? And that's an ongoing struggle, Ron. Well, that is an ongoing struggle. And what I hear lying in the undertones of what you're talking about is the tyranny of the urgent. And it is easily a situation where you get distracted in the tyranny of the urgent. And I'll tell you what I've done. You know, I've told you before, I'm kind of a task-oriented guy, and I've always got this ever-growing task list of things that I get done every day. And typically on any given day, there are virtually hundreds of tasks that need to be accomplished. You know, I'm just that kind of person. But in order to ensure that things stay as they should, that my priorities stay right, you want to know what the first 10 to 20 tasks are? Tell me. They're all key verses Mm. from Scripture dealing with the issues that I think God wants me to know about that week. You see, on Sunday, on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I set my task list for the week. And on each day of the week, the first tasks that are there are all key verses that I need to ponder and meditate on. And that forces me to begin with God. Love it. You know, so, you know, I know myself too well. (laughs) Any other way. Yeah. So you're going to do what works. Good counsel. Greatest disappointment in your context of ministry, vocation? Well, this is where things get a little personal, and I'm going to just tell you the truth on this. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that God has called me into the work of apologetics, and there's nothing I'd rather be doing. It is so needed in our day because the falling away from the faith is happening before our very eyes. But that said, one of the disappointments I've had to deal with personally is that modern apologetics has, in at least one very important sense, strayed way off track in Mm. recent years. And let me explain it to you this way. Apologetics is heavily focused on strong doctrinal answers. You know, for example, if someone has a deficient view of God, apologists argue for the correct doctrinal view of God. If someone has a deficient view of Jesus, apologists argue for the correct doctrinal view of Jesus. If some say that God doesn't exist, then apologists set forth reasons to believe in God's existence. Now, here's where the danger can emerge. One can subtly fall into the trap of thinking that Christianity is primarily all about being doctrinally correct, that Christianity primarily involves correct beliefs. And don't get me wrong, Michael, being doctrinally correct is very important. But at the same time, Christianity is much more than having correct beliefs. Christianity is more than orthodox beliefs. It involves an ongoing love relationship with the Lord that shows itself in the way that you live your life, and it shows itself in the way that you treat other people. Now, there's another point to make here. As 1 Corinthians 8.1 puts it, knowledge puffs up. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, Michael, because I'm talking about my own Mm -hmm. community. I truly hate to say it. But I have found in working with many, many other apologists out there at conferences and person to person, there often tends to be more arrogance and pride per square inch in the apologetics community than anywhere else on planet Earth. Interesting. And often I witness apologists, even well-known apologists that you hear on the radio, 
speaking in a very condescending way to those who have a deficient view on some matter. They have a spiritual chip on their shoulder, not an ounce of humility. And there's very little evidence of Christian graces. And so that brings me to my main point. A biblical apologist is not just a person who has strong answers. A biblical apologist begins with the person who first and foremost walks so closely with Christ that it shows in the way he or she lives and it shows in the way he or she treats other people. Hmm. Let me tell you, Michael, people listen to that person. You know, if you're shining Jesus and you have strong answers, people listen to that person. But if you're arrogantly talking down at someone, it doesn't matter how strong your answer is. People are going to turn away from you. And so we need a new kind of apologist today. I guess that's what I'm building up to. If we're going to be effective in keeping the church strong in its faith and in answering the objections to the Christian faith, we need a new kind of apologist today. When I was in seminary in the early 80s, our friend Dr. Norman Geiser was debating a guy at Perkins Seminary, SMU, and a number of factors. One, this professor did not know what he was getting into. I might have seen that debate. Uh, yeah, he was completely overmatched. Two, it was held in this very undersized chapel, yeah. and mostly men were in there. A lot of Dallas guys, a lot of guys from Perkins. We were hanging on the pews, standing. You know, if the fire marshal had showed up, we'd have been dispersed. And, of course, they were going all over. They were talking about intelligent design, about first cause, and Geisler, of course, you know, you don't go to a gunfight with a knife, you know, and that poor professor was so (laughs) overmatched. He was filleted, parsed, you know, skinned alive. And after it was over, I mean, in the students, all the students, both the seminary students from Dallas and the Perkins students were applauding when Geisler would give answers. It was so unusual. And when the debate was over, Frederick Howe, who you well remember, mm-hmm. Dr. Howe told us, and I saw this happen, but I didn't you know, know the context. He said, as soon as the debate was over, you saw Dr. Geisler go over and shake that, I won't name him, professor's yeah. hand. And he said the words, none of this is personal. I care about you as an individual, and I would love to take you to dinner or coffee, whatever it was. And I remember the next day being in Dr. Howe's theology proper class and him telling that story to us. And I sat there with my mouth open, Ron, going, now that is a prince of a believer. Yeah. Because this guy was so over, you know, matched out of his league. And yet Norm was concerned about his heart and his soul and respected him as a person. I do remember seeing a debate just like that. And it may have been the same one, Michael. Could have been. Could have been. After Norman Geisler gave his opening defense, the other guy came on stage and said, I have a feeling you've done this before. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was the same event. <laughs> anyway, Any event. so important because I had to learn that lesson myself because, you know, even dealing with the kingdom of the cults, for example, you know, you might have some cults to show up on your doorstep and ring the doorbell. And I would go out on the doorstep and talk with them. And I would win every single argument. And I had a tendency to be exactly the kind of apologist that I just advise you not to be. Mm. You know, I won every argument, but I didn't show the kind of love and humility that I should have. And I now look back on that 
those early years with regret because I now call that the flamethrower approach to evangelism. <laughs> I, I roasted them on the doorstep. They yeah. couldn't answer the point. I mean, you don't lose arguments with a doctoral degree from Dallas. Yeah. But once I learned the important lesson of being a biblical apologist, and that is to say you walk with Jesus and you let that, you know, transform your character and you choose love and humility over pride and arrogance and you genuinely care for the other person and let that care show over to the other person, that's when you start to see some results. And, you know, it's examples like Norman Geisler set that is so very important. But I'm just sad to say that there are so many apologists today that are doing the exact opposite. I mean, I see them get up at conferences and they make fun of different cultists. Mm. They mock them from the stage. And what they don't realize is that at almost every conference I've done, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other cult members show up and watch. Yeah. And they watch Christians mocking them. That's just not the way to do it. Yeah. We have a mutual friend, Christopher Yuan, who does a great job in talking about sexual identity and same-sex attraction and such. And I've had him to come to Nashville on a couple of occasions, and we've done some things together in ministry where he is just the expert. And he has told me that so many of his friends from the LGBTQ community come to hear him. And they're in his audience when he's talking to Christians about these issues. And he said, you know, the first time I ever looked out there, it was a you know combination of excitement and terror. Yeah. Because he's talking about how Christ changed his life. And he wants these folks to know Christ. And you can't bash them or be rude or angry or you said flamethrower you know you're not gonna there was an old one frame cartoon i had in a book that i lost unfortunately but it was a guy a crusader on a horse with a you know a shield and he's got this lance in this guy's throat who's on the ground and the guy on the ground says so tell me about this jesus of yours <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, it doesn't work real well. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yep. Here. All right, let's move on. Greatest encouragement then. We've talked about disappointments. Greatest encouragement in ministry and vocation. Well, the greatest encouragement, Michael, is the letters and emails I get. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Nothing gets me more excited than seeing real, genuine redemption of human beings. And when I'm referring to redemption, I'm not just referring to the fact that people have turned to Christ for salvation. I certainly include that because that's so very important. That's a wonderful aspect of redemption. But to me, it goes beyond that. And it also includes the wonderful change that can take place in people's lives in the now. And it excites me to no end when people find redemption as a result of my feeble efforts in Christian ministry. For example, a Jehovah's Witness becomes a Christian and is set free from oppressive cultic bondage, or a Mormon becomes a Christian, or a New Ager becomes a Christian and is set free from mystical gobblegook, or a husband and father who is dying from cancer discovers a renewed faith from apologetics and is able to face his death assured of his salvation and his future in heaven. I mean, when I get letters like that and talk about that kind of stuff, I mean, that's what makes all the difference. And I don't know how it's been with you, Michael, but there's been times in Christian ministry where you can get discouraged. I mean, 
It can oh, I've never, I've never been screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never had a bad day. <laughs> never had a bad day. Okay, well, I need to get together with you. Figure All out right, you believe that? Yeah. But anyway, the Lord has this way of just at the right moment, if there's a discouraging day, he'll send some letter along from somebody, either by email or by, you know, some people still actually use the mail today. And it's just at the right moment. And it's such an encouragement to me to see that life change. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. It's not me that's the life change agent. All I do in my books is talk about scripture. And it's scripture that is life changing. Yeah, we're just tools. We're just tools. Yeah. Well, but God uses you. And that's that's the exciting part is that God uses a guy like Dr. Ron Rose or a guy like Michael Easley. And you just shake your head. And you may have similar experiences like me. I, I call it chump change theology. I was talking about, you know, A, and they heard something incidental or that, you know, maybe they kind of piece something together I really didn't even say, but they will attribute God using, you know, hearing you on the radio or hearing you at a conference or reading yeah. one of your books and you just shake your head and go, Lord, long before I was chastised by a friend on my Twitter account in the early years. My little signature was, if God can use Balaam's ass, maybe he can use me. (laughs) A good point. Yeah. And I had a friend of mine say, you're just using a cursed word. And I said, hey, it's your King James. Come on. (laughs) But I was younger then, and now I'm older, and I can say those things. But it comes back to that, that he uses us. And that's an amazing, it gives you chill bumps that, you well, would use me? And one of the things about that is, is it takes the burden off of you because it's not my responsibility. Exactly. God is in the conversion business, not me. Exactly. I just try to be a faithful instrument through which the word of God can be shared. And I try to do it accurately. And I try to rightly divide the word of truth. But then it's in God's hands after that. Well, and you do. And I don't mean this in the wrong way. I've said this for decades. I've said, Ron Rhodes, is the Ravi Zacharias for every man, meaning, and you know, you and I both love Ravi. We love Ravi, but it takes a graduate education and a thesaurus and a dictionary and some copious notes to follow Ravi. He speaks in a different acumen. And Ron Rhodes to me is the guy that puts it on the 12th grade education. Doesn't diminish the intellect, academic, or content, but you communicate it in a way that the Sermon on the Mount Everybody could get it. And that's the one of the ways I think God has uniquely wired and used you, which is why I've come to you. <laughs> How many times my hat man, Ron, I got to do a media hit. What do I talk about on these three points? <laughs> well, <laughs> give, me, been, give me the scripture. <laughs> I feel much the same way about the work that you do. And it's amazing how God has got each of us in the part of the vineyard where we need to be. And that's a good thing to remind folks of, too. As they yeah. don't have to be a Ron Rhodes or a Robbie Zacharias or a Chuck Swindoll or a Charles Stanley or, you know, a Tony Evans or a Michael Easley. They had to be who they are, and they're more effective. And you know, our great friend Howard Hendricks, you know, would say that so inimically, you know, be the man God wants you to be, not somebody else, you know, and you'll be far more effective if you're who Christ wants you to be. Right. Okay, let's move here. If you could write a letter to the 18-year-old Ron Rhodes, what would you tell him? What advice would you give him? Well, now I'm an older guy. I'm in my 60s, and so I'm old Ron now. But if I wrote a letter to my 18-year-old self, I think it might go something like this. Listen, young Ron, give an ear to the old Ron. (laughs) 
I want you to listen very carefully. And don't forget what I'm about to say. Here it is. You must once for all settle in your mind and never forget that the Bible alone is to be your source of authority for your spiritual life and blessing. Nothing takes the place of God's word, not Christian books, not churches, not pastors, not ministers, not Bible study leaders, not professors at seminaries, but the Bible alone. Don't ever fall away from the Bible. Listen, young Ron, in the years to come, the Bible will have many functions in your life. And then I give some examples, Michael, in this letter. Young Ron, the Bible will function as your manufacturer's handbook that will instruct how God, your creator, intends for you to operate throughout life. The Bible will be like a lens or an eyeglass that brings into sharp focus the events that you see throughout life. It will be the lens throughout which you see and interpret everything else. The Bible will be like your personal lamp. It will shed light on your path and help you to see clearly, especially when life gets confusing. And believe me, young Ron, there will be much confusion that surfaces throughout your life. Always go to the Bible as your refuge. Young Ron, the Bible will be like food for you, giving you spiritual nourishment on a daily basis. I can tell you based on decades of experience that you need daily nourishment from God's mm, word. Mm, mm. You won't thrive spiritually without it. Yesterday's feast on God's word will not suffice for the present day. Every day you must feed upon the word of God. And young Ron, you got to remember that the Bible also functions as a love letter from God. The Bible reveals God's great love for you, and believe me, you'll need to be reminded of this love over and over again. When you have a bad day, when you stumble into some form of sin, you're going to feel guilt, you're going to feel shame, and Satan, your enemy, is going to pile on the shame. And at times like that, it's God's love letter in the Bible that will get you through. And there's going to be times when you may not feel much love from people around you, including at church, including at seminary including at Christian conferences, at times like that, God's love letter in the Bible makes all the difference. And then the Bible functions like an anchor, young Ron. It will protect you from being swept away by the tidal wave of adversity that's coming your way. And believe me, young Ron, I can promise you, adversity is coming your way. You can count on it. There is much tribulation you will encounter during your sojourn toward the heavenly country. The Bible will anchor you. And then finally, young Ron, beware of letting the Bible be crowded out of your life by the tyranny of the urgent. The danger is real. It will take committed effort not to be distracted from God's word. I promise you, young Ron, your life will be immeasurably blessed if you take haste and listen to all that I've just told you. Keep it in mind. Signed with loving affection, old Ron. <laughs> I think you should frame that and put it on your wall and remind yourself. <laughs> well, you know, as I look back over my life, I could just see many times where I screwed up on that. And it would have been nice to have that up front. You know, but and I was talking to someone else about this very issue. We talk about our young selves. And yet, you know, you don't have the maturity and wisdom of being a 50, 60, 70 year old believer unless you've lived 50, yeah. 67 years old. You can't, there's no shortcut, you know, there's no jump start. You have to go right. through the self doubt, the training, the education. It's almost like, you know, adolescence into adulthood. There's just, anyway. Okay, last question. 
what would you like your epitaph to say? Well, you know, when I uh, first considered that question, Michael, you kind of reminded me of that gravestone in Indiana. You probably know what I'm going to say here. <laughs> There's a gravestone in Indiana that says, pause, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. And then you know how an unknown passerby read those words and scratched some words beneath it that said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Yes. But as for my gravestone, it might say something like this. Here lies one who has left the land of the dying and has entered the land of the never-ending life. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Amen. That, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, I know where I'm going. Once I get there, I've left the land of the dying and have entered eternal life, and it's all based upon who Jesus is. There's so many other things that I could say. I mean, I thought about saying, here lies one who loves Jesus, his wife, his children, and everyone else. That's true, too. Yeah. And by the way, Michael, that reminds me to say one thing, and that is that that love cannot just be limited to those who are close to you. You want to know why I write books about the cults? It's because I love cultists. Mm. You want to know why I write books about New Agers? It's because I love New Agers. You know, why do I write all those books that criticize other religious groups and world religions? It's not because I'm in attack mode. It's because of love for other people. And that's got to be at the heart of all Christian ministry. So, I mean, that would be an appropriate gravestone as well. Absolutely. That loves everybody else. Absolutely. Dr. Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. And again, if you're just being introduced to Ron, if you put his name in your search engine and put books by Ron Rhodes, you will find a plethora of titles. They're great books to assemble. You might have friends in a particular cult or group or ism or ology, and chances are Ron has got a book that is easy to digest book that deals with key issues. And you need to have a few of those books on your shelf to give to your friends, read it with them and say, let's read a book by this guy and talk about it. I'd love to hear your opinion about what you think Ron is writing about. Ron, thanks for your friendship, for your stewardship, ongoing work. Love you, brother. Thanks for your time. And so appreciate how God is using you. Well, thank you, Michael. Likewise, back to you. Love you. And continuing to pray for your work is how God is using you in the kingdom of God. I pray that God continues to grow the number of people who are listening to this. And anytime I can help, just let me know. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.